0: Pella Windows and Doors of Wisconsin. Choose 18 months, no payments and no interest or $300 off each window, $700 off a Pell Entry System and $1,000 off a patio door. Get details at PellaWI.com.
1: Restrictions apply. See showroom for details.
0: Live from the Annex Wealth Management Studios, this is the Jeff Wagner Show. The Acunet Mortgage Talk and Text Line is open now. Give us a call at 855-616-1620. And now, WTMJ's Jeff Wagner.
1: Good afternoon, Wisconsin. Welcome to the show. Let's start out on a positive note. Our long international nightmare appears to be over. The gypsy moth is no more. You know, the gypsy moth, which is an extremely invasive spirit, uh, uh, invasive species of, of moth that in the spring and summer um, they, they lay their eggs everywhere and they create just all sorts of problems. Um, they destroy trees, they destroy shrubs. You know, the, the gypsy moth, well, you will be glad to know, maybe, that the gypsy moth is no more. Now, wait, you say, Jeff, have we developed something that, that's eliminated this invasive species, the gypsy moth? You mean to tell me we're not going to have any more gypsy moths? Well, yes and no. You see, we're, we're not going to have any gypsy moths anymore. Instead, we are going to call them something else. The Entomological Society of America has announced that what has commonly been known forever as the gypsy moth—that is a species known as Lamantria dispar in Latin—I think my late Latin teacher, Winita Bonham, and the late great Winita Bonham and would have been proud of my pronunciation there—the gypsy moth. It's been known forever as the gypsy moth. Well, we are changing the name of the gypsy moth. It from now on will be known as the spongy moth. Um, Apparently, the Entomological Society of America has now voted unanimously to approve the addition of the term spongy moth to their list of common names of insects and related organisms list because... Well, they were concerned that calling it a gypsy moth might be offensive to some people. Uh, the term spongy moth um, is now going to be used for this particular moth because it refers to the moth's sponge-like egg masses. So... For all those of you who've seen the gypsy moth do damage to your property, your shrubs, the forest, all that sort of stuff, well, the good news is the gypsy moth is no more. The bad news is the moths are going to still be doing the same sort of damage, but we are going to not be offensive, and we are going to call it the spongy moth instead. (sighs) Heavy sigh. This is where we are in 2022, where it's like, well, we we can't have anybody offended by anything, and even though I am willing to bet that nobody, nobody who would refer to the gypsy moth as the gypsy moth intended offense on any sort of particular group, in this case gypsies, which would people from a, a certain Eastern European area, nevertheless... Because somebody, somewhere, somehow, sometime, in some way, might find themselves offended. We now have the spongy moths. I am waiting, I am waiting for the advocacy groups who support sponges to come forward and say, wait a second, this is unfair to sponges, because now you are labeling sponges as the equivalent, and what has a sponge ever done to anybody? You are labeling sponges as the equivalent of this invasive sort of species. Oh, the horror. No, we don't make this stuff up. Um, So there you go. These are the names that are being changed all over. I I do have a, a question, though. You know, Fleetwood Mac, one of Fleetwood Mac has lots of great songs, but one of their really, really good songs that I like is the song Gypsy from the 1982. Oh, I, I don't know. I mean, are we now going to rename the song uh, Gypsy? Are we now going to call it Spongy? I, I don't know. I mean, I, I'd have to, th- I am trying to think through the lyrics. I, I'm not sure how well that would work, but our, our international nightmare is over. We no longer are going to call this invasive species the Gypsy Moth. Boy, don't we all feel better about that. All right, we started off yesterday's program, and and I understand sometimes I sound like a broken record when it comes to talking about car thefts, but I'm sorry, I am outraged that nobody does anything about this. Currently, this year so far, and here we are, first couple days of March, according to the Milwaukee police, in the city of Milwaukee alone, fifteen hundred and forty eight cars have been stolen that compares to fourteen hundred and eighty nine this time last year and as we know last year just was an all-time record ten thousand four hundred and eighty cars stolen we're already above that limit not 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 much above but it's almost unthinkable twenty five to twenty six cars on average are stolen every day in the city of milwaukee I started the program yesterday by sharing an email I got from a, a friend of mine who lives in Whitefish Bay in a very, very nice house off the lake for the second time in a couple of years. His car was stolen out of his driveway um in the, you know they found it hours later, and people had you know rifled through it and they had tried to disable like the tracking system and stuff, but it was the whole notion of being violated in that sort of fashion, and we 've shared other stories like that in the past about how this impacts people and my my point is enough is enough it's time to have the district attorney's office create a car theft task force with prosecutors designed to prosecute people who are stealing cars and and what really got me started is today's TMJ4 had this had this analysis from last year of the 10,400 cars that were stolen only 11 percent that would be one in 10 were ever arrested and of that 1 in 10, only 1 in 5 were ever prosecuted. So just, just, and that's not even convicted. So if you steal a car in the city of Milwaukee, you only have a 10, it's actually 11% to be precise, an 11% chance that you're going to be caught and a 5% chance that you're going to be prosecuted. And even if you're prosecuted, we never, especially if you're a juvenile, we never hear the dispositions. Chances are almost nothing's going to happen to you. So if we wonder if, if this, this ink blot of car thefts and punks that are out there stealing cars, we, we wonder why it is spreading and spreading and spreading. Well, it's real easy because there's absolutely no consequences to this. So there, there's, if you go to JS Online, there's a piece by one of their writers, James Causey, who is not, I don't think if you would look back at his writings historically, and I want to be fair about this, he he would not strike you as, I don't know, one of the guys that's really like a sort of tough on crime guy like I am. Here Here's, here's a portion of his piece that appears, you know, online. It only took two minutes for our daughter to become Milwaukee's 1,544th car theft victim of 2022. It only took two minutes for our daughter to become the 1,544th car theft victim of the year. Just think about that. Just just for a second. We're just a raw number. We're here. It's what March 4th. So you're just a little more than two months into the year, and already 1,500, and actually the current total is 1,548 cars have been stolen. The piece continues. Tuesday began simple enough. Um, His daughter was moving into her first apartment, a studio in the city's east side around the corner from Brady Street. The 22-year-old even picked out a pet rabbit named Petals. A friend of hers had two rabbits and wanted to get rid of one. She was ready to be a rent-paying adult. She saved up months for the move, even picking up extra shifts at work she had $600 cash in her purse to pay her rent she went to target to get several last minute things her friend victoria filled up her blue 2017 hyundai elantra with most of my daughter's things they found a great parking space in front of her building 8:20 p.m put on the hazard lights grabbed a box they marched up the stairs to the second floor apartment by the time they dropped off the boxes and headed downstairs the car was gone We were only upstairs two minutes, and now all my stuff is gone, his daughter said. We were at home just about to eat dinner when my daughter called my wife, frantic. I've never had my vehicle stolen, but I know a lot of people in the city who have. I know a few who've had their cars stolen multiple times. Milwaukee reported a record 10,000-plus cars stolen in 21. As of March 1st, the day the car was stolen, car thefts are up 12% compared to the same time last year. That, by the way, is just the city. Again, it doesn't talk about the suburbs. Two months from now... Milwaukee police planned on towing unregistered vehicles used in reckless driving incidents. Some feel this new measure will target the poor. But for victims like our daughter, who is far from rich, and the thousands who've had their vehicle stolen, this sort of enforcement is not harsh enough. If your vehicle is stolen and you leave your purse or wallet in the car, the first thing you have to do is cancel your credit cards. Well, my daughter couldn't do this right away because her phone was in the car too. She used her friend's phone, was able to cancel her car. Thieves work fast, as some of my friends have learned the hard way. Their cards were used to make purchases at Walmart and grocery stores. In addition to her phone and purse, my daughter lost most of her clothes. She lost her dishes, candles, silverware that she had purchased from Target, her AirPods, her books, her other sentimental items that she can't replace, like pictures and birthday cards. They're gone. They're probably going to throw all my stuff on the side of the road. While some people think of a car theft as a victimless crime, losing a car or your belongings in a car can turn your life upside down, and stolen cars are used to commit other crimes. Often the thieves are the ones blowing through red lights, driving at excessive speeds. The, The article goes on, but here's the interesting thing. The Journal Sentinel columnist not necessarily known as a tough-on-crime guy, says, we need tougher punishment. A lot of people are upset over rampant recklessness on the city streets, and there's palpable anger directed at public officials who people think need to do more to stop it. My take? The punishment needs to be clear for such crimes. It isn't now. And I hear politicians say driver's education is part of the problem. I wonder if they're driving on the same streets I drive. I took driver's ed in 1986 at John Marshall High School during my junior year. Before driver's education, I wasn't stealing cars and neither were my friends. Today, half of the car arrests are kids under 16. Um then it goes on to talk about, you know, how they're going to, you know, tow cars that are involved in being driven recklessly. But the measure measure doesn't take effect until May because the Commission, Fire and Police Commission wants police departments to launch a public information campaign to educate residents. Why do you need to inform the public that driving 60 miles an hour down Capitol Drive is wrong or that leading police on a high-speed chase is illegal? If this is the solution, we'll never solve the problem. Reckless driving and car theft are epidemics in our city. Public officials should act like they understand it. And, you know, then it goes on. Apparently, they, they found the car. Most of the stuff in the car was stolen. It took two minutes to, to rip it off. I, and, I mean, if you go on JS online, you, you can see this. Our number is 855 which is the Acunet Mortgage Talk and Text Line. What I, what I found interesting about the, this piece is it, it, again, helps put a face on this crime. I think too often the, the general attitude is, oh, you know, it's a victimless crime. Okay, so they took your car. Well, you, you've got insurance. You'll be able to deal with this. We don't want to come down too hard on the punks or whatever who are, are ending up doing this, or the thugs. It's it's just a car. Nobody's dead. They just took your stuff. Eight five five six one six one six twenty. This is a big deal, and if you've ever had your car stolen, I think you. Would agree. The stuff in the car is gone in almost all situations. The car, you know, if you get it back, chances are it's going to be at least if not totaled it's going to be in really really sad shape if you have to replace it and make an insurance claim good luck with that because it's not just your deductible it's you know all the other stuff good luck trying to find a new car nowadays to replace your old car plus it is the sense of violation that somebody took what belonged to you and you have people who are doing this it's only a matter of minutes it's only a matter of minutes 8556161620 all right is it time for the victims to start standing up and saying enough is enough why is nobody listening to us why are we not catching the people that are doing this why are we not prosecuting the people that are doing this and why are not we not sending the punks who are doing this why are we not sending them to jail or to youth facilities or to boot camps or or whatever? Why do we have to wait till the 14-year-old steals the car, drives 95 miles an hour through a red light and hits and kills somebody before we say enough is enough? Have you been a victim? Has anybody close to you been a victim? And how does that make you feel, especially knowing that we have a criminal justice system that by all intents and purposes does Doesn't give a rat's rump about you. 855 616 1620. We discuss. Jeff Wagner on WTMJ. A number of people are pointing out that, that the old adage, and it's true, that the quickest way for a liberal to become a conservative is to have their house burglarized or their car stolen. Yeah, that that, that is, and uh, that is one of these sort of sea changes. When, but I I don't I don't want to talk about that aspect of the story. It it's more that this overall problem that we seem to just not be paying attention and recognizing that when it is a violation of your privacy it is a violation of your person and this idea that we don't seem to think that it is a big deal is really frustrating marty and kenosha marty you're on wtmj i i
2: I, jeff i really i really enjoy your show i just i'm going to be the one that has to say this um if we clamp down people are going to go to jail and they're going to go to jail for a long time and i'm all for that but when you look at the demographics of who might be going to jail, you're going to have a backlash of people saying, look what, who's been targeted, and we have too many of a certain color, race, uh, age in jail. Mm-hmm. And no elected official wants to be attacked for that.
1: Well, I mean, thanks for the call, Marty. You're, you're yeah, right. I mean, that, that, right. No, you're you you are exactly right. This is, but this is this is the reality. Otherwise, it's. I, I've used the phrase "Lord of the Flies." It's wild in the streets. You're, you're right. I think there is this hesitation. We don't want to prosecute people because it's going to be too many of this type of person, or too many of that type of person, or too many people of color, or whatever. Well, okay. The, the problem though is you, you have these criminals that are preying on the, the community, and, and my guess is you have a lot of persons of color, for example, who are maybe disproportionately victims of this type of stuff. And so we've got to put an end to it. You need leadership. The district attorney's office is is just completely and totally punched out. John Chisholm's policies have been a complete and total failure and have resulted in where we are now. The police, I understand the police are a little bit frustrated about this because they say, and I, I hear this informally off the record as well, you know, yeah, you're exactly right yes we're so frustrated with these car thieves that are out there but even if we catch them the DA's office doesn't do anything with them and even if the DA's office by some miracle decides to charge somebody well then the courts do nothing with them so meanwhile people on the streets of Milwaukee are are victimized people in suburbs are being victimized like I say as the ink stain spreads out through various and sundry communities and you get to an overall situation where it's just flat out not safe on the road Roadways. Your property isn't safe, but also if you're driving on the roads, you never know when you're going to see one of these 15-year-old punks who has stolen the car, now driving 90 miles an hour, blowing through the, the red light, trying to avoid the police or whatever. It's We've lost control of the urban jungle. And you need to get it back. And if that means saying, look, we're cracking down on this and we're instituting juvenile boot camps and we're creating these task forces and this is going to be their mission, they are going to aggressively prosecute people who are committing these various crimes and we don't care if it's 14 or 16 or 18 or 26, the fact that you only have 5% of all the car thefts all the car thefts, what, however, over ten thousand last year, only five percent of the people were actually prosecuted in connection with that. That is a staggering failure of the criminal justice system. It is staggering, and the bad guys are laughing at all of us. And so, you know, what do law-abiding citizens do? Well, okay, I guess the message is you got to put your car in your garage. If you don't have a garage, sorry, you know, you're you will just just wait. You know, wait to be plucked. You know, like like a duck. They just just wait. They are are out there. You can't leave your keys in your coat. I mean, never leave your purse in your car. If you're if you're a lady filling up for gasoline at a store at a at a self-service pump, I don't know exactly what you do because if you turn your back, somebody's going to jump in and steal that car. We have turned the streets over to the bad guys. And I don't hear anybody talking about wanting to take the measures you need to take them back. And until that happens, more and more of us are going to be victims on a daily basis. And I think that's unacceptable. Back with more in just a minute. This is Jeff Wagner.
0: This is Jeff Wagner on WTMJ.
1: Okay, this is the bizarre criminal story of the day. And next time I see my buddies Joe and Mark, I'm going to have to ask them how they feel about this. Here's the story. A Milwaukee man, this is the way it's reported on today's GMJ4. A Milwaukee man has been charged after he allegedly recorded 542 people changing in locker rooms at various Wisconsin Athletic Club locations. An arrest warrant, more on that in just a second, has been issued for Peng Dong, 33, after a criminal complaint states he used a coffee cup with a camera inside to record people changing in locker rooms. The recordings date back to August of 2019 and were taken at several different locations across Brookfield, Glendale, and Wauwatosa. My my buddies, my dear friends, Mark and Joe, go to the Wisconsin Athletic Club in Glendale on an almost daily basis. Peng Dong was arrested most recently on December 24th in Brookfield when a Wisconsin Athletic Club employee saw him arguing with one of the victims in the locker room. The employee said he saw Dong pleading with the victim to give his coffee cup back, according to the complaint. When the employee entered the locker room, the victim handed the cup to the employee. That's when Dong began pleading with the employee for the cup back. An officer responded to the scene where the employee gave the officer the cup, according to the criminal complaint, the lip of the cup had something attached to it and there were wires sticking out. Another employee at the Wisconsin Athletic Club had seen the cup and confronted Dong about it, the complaint states. He told police that Dong said the items had been stolen from his lock that items had been stolen from his locker <clears throat> and he was using the camera to catch the person. He allegedly told the victim this was the first time he had used it. The officer who spoke to the victim said he recognized Dong but not from his appearance. He said it was the odd behavior he had seen before. The complaint says the victim had seen Dong set up his backpack in the locker room gently and precisely and then walk away from it. That day, the victim noticed the cup inside the side sleeve. He initially thought he saw water drops on the outside, but looking closer, he saw there were two holes and one had a camera lens. Um... The, the story the guy gives is, well, somebody stole some stuff from me. I was trying to find out, and so this was the first time I used it. The officer saw a remote control in the backpack that they used to activate this. Um, the officer asked Dong if there was ever a chance he recorded anyone naked. Yuck. The complaint said Dong laughed and said yes. He was then placed under arrest. They then searched the SD card with the videos on it, um, police then were doing searches, found several laptops, cell phones, flash drives, hard drives. After going through them all, officers concluded Dong had recorded 542 people at various locations across Brookfield, Glendale, and Wauwatosa. Many of them were changing their clothes at the time of the recordings. Some even showed Dong adjusting the camera to get clearer angles of intimate body parts. Yuck. According to the complaint, at least nine of the victims were under the age of ten. Um, the complaint says Dong also admitted to recording several sex videos with his without his partner's consent. Um, okay, so uh, Brookfield, after looking through this, Brookfield contacts Wawatosa and Glendale and informs them that there were videos that were taken in their city. So here's what apparently happened: the um, they charge him in Waukesha. Because that—that's what the Brookfield clubs are. He goes in front of a judge in Waukesha. They release him on one thousand dollars bail. Okay. All right. Want to guess what happens? You got three guesses. The first two don't count. He pays the thousand dollars and jumps bail. So he doesn't show up for his court appearance in February. He's now in—in in the wind. So he—he's jumped bail. On the recordings in Walworth in Brook in Brooklyn, Waukesha County, and he's now been charged in Milwaukee County, and there's an arrest warrant out for him. But he's um, he is fleeing justice, and of course, the, the Wisconsin Athletic Club has put out a statement, and they feel absolutely awful about this. And I mean, I understand because this is the, I mean, this is the type of thing that really kind of hurts your business in a in a big way if you've got some creepo who's doing this. I guess to me, the the amazing aspect of this story is. That he was able to apparently get away with this for as long as, as long as he did. I I mean, this, this goes back apparently like to 2019 and 542 videos. So he, he apparently had raised this to kind of an art form of being able to go in and film people while they did not have their clothes on. So my question to my buddies are going to be, have you ever, ever seen this guy and with his backpack adjusting it? So. It's just, it's the just, you want to talk about just the yuck factor. And we were talking earlier in the show about like the violation of having your car stolen and stuff. You want to talk about being violated. This is the deal where. You know, you're at the athletic club and things like that, and all of a sudden there's some creepo who's got again a camera hidden in a coffee cup that's stashed in his backpack and is filming people or taking pictures or whatever. And I, I you know, I, I don't know what you do with it, although and how you stop this when you've got these, you know, people that are doing this stuff. But just talk about the level of violation. And, and yeah, I understand the prisons are are crowded, but you know what? When they catch him. Um, it, it's time to send him away for a while. All right, here, here's a. I guess it's an ethical question, and I, I was intrigued by this. Uh, here, here's the story. It's out of actually uh, the New York Times, and they have, they have a columnist who like tells you what the right and the wrong thing is to do. You know, and and so and people will call, will write in letters, and they'll ask them. You know, what would you do here? Now let me back up for this for just a minute. If you fly. Um, chances are, there, there, there's a couple type of people that are in the world. There's some people who just, you know, they don't care. Any Anything's good enough. It doesn't matter. Get me on the plane. I'll, I'll take the middle seat. I don't care. There's others, and I happen to kind of fall into that second category. I mean, I'm 6'1". I crammed in a middle seat is not a, a desirable thing. So, for example, when I fly, if you're allowed to reserve seats, I reserve seats and I pay extra for it. Typically, that's what ends up happening because I want an aisle seat. I, I have certain areas of the plane that I would prefer. I mean, I'm not obsessive about it, but I, I, I try to book in advance, and I try to get that. If I fly Southwest, for example, that does not have reserved seats, I pay the $20 extra whatever it is for the early bird seating that gets you in in like the first 60 or so. You don't exactly know where you're going to get in, but I pay a little bit extra so I can get on because I know that, I'm going to be able to, in all likelihood, get an aisle seat if I pay that extra money, because it's a little bit important to me. Okay, so that's the backdrop. And I know for other people, they don't care. Here's the letter. I am an organized person. When I travel, I book my flights well in advance. This usually lets me claim my preferred seat on the aisle in the bulkhead row. I have long legs and those seats tend to provide more legroom. Not that I have to justify myself. This brings me to my problem. The last two times I've flown, a flight attendant has asked me to change seats in order to accommodate a parent flying alone with small children. My moving would allow them to sit together, but I didn't want to move they could have booked in advance too so i politely refused several passengers made nasty comments to me was i wrong to hold my ground 855 616 1620 that's the acenet mortgage talk and text line all right so here's the deal you're you're on you are on the plane you have reserved your seat in all likelihood you've booked in advance maybe you've paid extra for the privilege of having this seat that you like or you've paid extra for Southwest to get the early bird seating so you can be you know one of the first people on the plane you've chosen the seat that you you like the plate is crowded In most cases they're they're kind of full and you have the parent that gets on with the small children and says well we want to all sit together so they ask you to move right, should you should you say yes And are you a bad guy if you don't say yes? 855-616-1620. We discuss in a moment.
2: This is Jeff Wagner on WTMJ. 855-616-1620. This
1: is going to be an interesting conversation. Betty in Waukesha. Betty, good afternoon. Hi, Jeff. Hi, Betty.
2: I am as tall as you, and I never minded getting to the airport super early to get that exit aisle. You know, it was really important. And, you know, really, you have to be able to pull that door off. Isn't that the bottom line, to sitting in the exit aisle?
1: Right, right, right. But so how could they put a mother
2: with two little kids? Well, yeah,
1: I'm not sure. I think his, he says he says he wants to be in the one with, like, the bulkhead. So I'm not sure it's exit aisle. But, let, let's, but let's talk about the basic oh, principle. Oh, no, no, okay. no. no. The, the,
2: yeah, the bulkhead is the, is the first seat.
1: Right. But that's the so one the, I
2: put my feet up on the wall.
1: God, right, right but okay so but so so let 's talk let 's say uh, let, let's say it's it's a it 's a jam plane, okay, like they all are nowadays yeah. you 've you 've gotten there early um you're sit you 've got the aisle you 've got the aisle seat and the middle seat is empty next to you, and then there's somebody like against the window right. or whatever, and they come up and they say, betty. Um could you know could you leave get out of this aisle seat and you know we have got a middle seat available for you in the back of the plane so these these parents can sit to, this the woman can sit together with her kid would you do it
3: <laughs> <laughs>
2: well, Be honest come on Please, Okay yes yeah, yeah, yes I would do it because I consider myself a nice person but would I want to do it and is it important to me to be comfortable on the airline yes but Yes, I would do it, and,
1: and this you know, this whole Catholic guilt trip, Lent thing. Thank you. <laughs> Thanks for the call. It's, oh, it's, it's the Catholic guilt trip. Okay. Uh, okay, here's a text from Heather. Jeff, obviously the person who's complaining doesn't have small kids and shouldn't have any. If I were a flight attendant, he wouldn't have had a choice. Small unattended children on a plane is a bad idea. Okay, but whose fault is that? I guess th- this, is, this is the question. You're, you're right. Small unattended children on a plane is a bad idea, but does that mean, mean then that it's the fault of the person who's paid extra to, to get on the plane early or paid extra and booked three months in advance because they want this seat? Is it their fault that you have, in this case, the, the parent that gets on who who hasn't done that, who decides, no, I, I this is a desirable seat here, you've you got to move? I mean, who, whose fault is that, that the kid is unattended. Jeff, I tell him to give me a credit for another flight. Um, let's see, uh, here, here's a text. Jeff, yes, you should move. Yes, you are a bad guy if you don't move. This happened to my family on a trip to Hawaii. I had to beg someone to move so that I could sit next to my eight-year-old daughter. She was traumatized at the idea of not sitting near me for an eight-hour flight. What happened to being a human being and putting other people's needs ahead of your own? Yes, you should move and accommodate someone, particularly if they have children or elderly people with them. I actually sent a texter notice. I'm just curious then, why didn't you book seats together? It, it, and look, cause I I understand it's it's a big deal. Why didn't you make arrangements if you're traveling with a family to to reserve the seats in some fashion? And they say we did, but someone took our spots because we boarded late and they wouldn't move. Um, Jeff, no, you are not a bad guy if you don't move. The flight attendant should ask for a volunteer to move. Or for the people who just made the comments, they can feel free to move. You shouldn't have to justify to strangers why you need the seat you selected. As a co-worker says, your lack of planning for me in an emergency doesn't make sense. Jeff, I would not be moving unless I am compensated very well. Jeff, family boarding makes sure people with little kids get seated after primary first-class customers so there is almost always room. Yeah, that that's, that, that's typically... You know, what What happens, unless you're just rushing on the plane at the last minute, because, I mean, the last several times I've flown has been southwest, but after the, like, A, they have A, B, and C group boarding, and I, after the A group, which is typically the people who paid extra for the early bird thing, then they allow families to, to get on. So if, if in this particular situation, my guess is the people came on at the very last minute. Um. Jeff, I, unless I'm compensated very well, I am not doing this. Um, Jeff, I have children, and every time we flew, I made sure when I booked that we had seats together. Um, that, that's completely irresponsible for people to get on the plane. And, and no, he should not have to move. Jeff, you move. Anyone that uh, tells you they don't doesn't have children, be considerate. Hmm. Well, and again, I, I just, I mean, I, I understand that, but does, doesn't consideration roll both ways? That, that's thats my question here. I mean, doesn't it roll both ways to the extent that if you, you know, you you make arrangements, you want the seat, the seat's important to you, you've paid extra for the seat, you've made the priority thing, and then someone who hasn't done that, bumps you out of it because, well, they, they show up with, with the kids. And, and obviously, you know, you, you want to be sitting next to the kids. I, I understand it's not a good idea to separate. Brad and Fond du Lac. Brad, you're on WTMJ. Good afternoon.
2: Uh, thanks for taking my call. Not Hi. talking about, like, Southwest, where it's sort of a free range, you know, pick your seat where it can happen by random, but a lot of the airlines – If you get the basic economy, the absolute cheapest, then they assign your seats at the gate. And so people kind of create their own problem. I guess if I were traveling with children, I would book it ahead of time because I fly a lot and I I select my seats before I even pay for the flight. There's that option. So they should just plan ahead and get seats that are all together. And, yes, it's going to cost them $40 more a ticket or something, but it's your kids.
1: Right, right. No, no, thanks for the call. I appreciate it. You know, okay, if you were to ask me how would I handle this, I I think, I I mean, I guess the the answer is it depends. On on one level, I I want to, I'd like to be cooperative in these things. I guess it kind of depends. If I was not on, like, a Southwest flight, I think one of the things that I would be saying to the flight attendant, and actually the, guys responding to this well if, if you want my seat okay I, I see there's some places up there in business class how about you comp me and let me move up there and you you can certainly then just just have this seat and uh, I think that that's a fair thing to ask it also kind of depends on on where they're asking to move you if okay well we've got a seat right in the back by the bathroom in the middle and you go hey look I'm six one I mean this is this is the reason why I did all this um, I, I think the appropriate thing is to ask for volunteers and my guess is that you're gonna get some people that don't end up caring do I think though that you have an obligation to have to move and do I think that you are a bad guy as a general rule if you decide no I, I've made my arrangements for this my, my answer would be no I, I don't think you have to move if you choose to do it That that's great but I don't think other people should necessarily abuse you if you decide not to and for all those people who were like staring and didn't like the fact that the guy wouldn't move or the gal wouldn't move um, okay well well maybe they should have volunteered to give up their seats and and then the whole problem ends up getting solved but again I I keep coming back to the idea that as a general rule maybe this is a planning thing on the part of the people who are are traveling just saying alright back with lots more in just a couple minutes this is Jeff Wagner WTMJ
0: Live from the Annex Wealth Management Studios this is the Jeff Wagner
1: Show and now WTMJ's Jeff Wagner Good afternoon, Wisconsin. Welcome back to the show. I don't know. Pay attention because I come this way but once. You can learn from my mistakes, and I made one yesterday evening. All right, so here, here, here is the story, and it's one of those things that I knew this was – I knew that I should probably not do this, but I was legitimately curious. Um, I was exploring the idea of how much it would cost – to ship a car from one location to another just because, you know, nowadays gas prices are high with regard to driving and I was just I was just I was just curious. If I wanted to ship a vehicle from point A to point B, what what would it cost? Never done that before, never even considered it. And I, I just I wanted to figure rental cars cost a lot, you know, nowadays. You know, would it would it make any sense at all to to do that? So I'm just just kind of curious about it. So I'm I'm on one particular website or whatever and it and of course they're asking for the information they're saying okay where do you want to ship it from where do you want to ship it to when are you looking to do this and you know, just just give us your contact information and and we'll give you a bid okay and you know they're asking for your email address and stuff and I'm like and and the phone number and I'm like well I hate to do this but I I, I'm just I'm curious just as to how much this would cost so I put the information in I, I send it off I, I, I'm not exaggerating. Um, I probably did that maybe like 9 or 10 o'clock last night. I have, over the course of the last, what, 12 hours or so. I, I have probably had thirty to forty responses, whether it's voicemails, whether it's texts, you well, you you name it, whether it's just unsolicited phone calls from. It seems to me like every car shipping uh, firm in, in the country, ranging from San Francisco to Florida to upstate New York, all wanting to bid on on this, and it's kind of like stop. It was just it was that that one. And I I was thinking about it, should I do that, should I do that? It was that one, and now, of course, I'm I'm erasing them, and I'm trying to just just block them and stuff like that, but it was that that one thing. So if you're ever in that situation, and they're asked, here, we're going to give you the bid, uh, I don't know, you just take it from me just be prepared that you're going to get bids from all over and I guess on the one hand it, it's that's the free market now I quickly decided that that would make absolutely no sense as to what the cost was so I, I'm really I'm not interested in that at all but now you're getting and you do get a whole range of bids and stuff like that but you know, it's not just for some reason you're not just communicating with the, the one place you are communicating now with all sorts of places and they, uh, they want your business so if if you ever are asked for that information and you want to hit that button, I don't know, maybe you just want to think twice. Just uh, saying, here's a texter saying, Jeff, just try putting a job application online and see what happens. That's it. All right. Um, we, we've been listening to reports, again, for the last week and a half, and you heard what you know Jane was talking about, the latest developments going on in Ukraine. It is it is just, there's no way to describe it other than a really, really ugly situation. Um Aspects of the Russian, investi- uh, Russian invasion have bogged down, um, but that they have taken at least one, one major city – I'm not exactly sure what that means because it's not like the people have surrendered. They're they're still fighting, but the Russians are starting to occupy this. You you have the story about how they bombed a nuclear plant, creating a fire. You've got a huge humanitarian crisis that's going on as you have refugees that are just pouring across the the border in, in an effort to try to get out. And there's really, I don't know what the end game here necessarily is because I think it's very clear that Vladimir Putin overplayed his hand if if he thought he was going to win a quick military victory that hasn't happened but at the same time I mean over time you got to figure that the Russian army if they continue to do what they're doing they they might have to level the entire country and you might have to kill hundreds of thousands of civilians in the process but at the end of the day you, you got to think that the, the military superiority they have will, will allow them to win unless the West decides to get you know actively involved and the West isn't going to do that. So the only way to try to make Putin stop is by, from the perspective of the West, is by imposing enough sanctions so that it starts to hurt at, at home. Hurt in Russia, go after the oligarchs. As I've said this before, You know one of the ways that you really hurt rich people is you make them less rich. So you've got that. Um, so you've got to just really sort of start to tighten up the the screws, and as we've talked about before, unlike China that has that this mat that that makes stuff and, and trades stuff with the world, Russia is basically a gas station. You know they they provide they, they provide whether it's natural gas or whether it's petroleum or whatever that that's what they're 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 sending out. You shut that off and you really hurt them economically. Now despite the fact that we have imposed a variety of sanctions the one thing that we have not done in the United States at this point in time is we have not banned US imports of Russian oil. We, we still continue to accept oil from Russia and, and pay them for that. Now our Russian oil Um, We we don't get a lot of it. I I think it's probably about, you know, three to four percent of the oil that we get, you know, ends up coming from from Russia. But nevertheless, we're we're getting oil from Russia. A number of people in the Senate and this is Republicans and Democrats are saying, look, this this we got to be done with this. You know, we've we've got to stop if we're talking about sanctions and we want to hurt Russia. But it's. It is hypocritical at best for us to continue to get oil from Russia, and and we need to shut it off. So far, despite the fact that you have both conservatives and liberals... Republicans and Democrats who are pushing this, Joe Biden has not gone along with it, in part because he realizes that at least in the short term, if you do it, it's going to cause gas prices domestically to go up. That That is inevitable. Now, I don't know that that's going to be a long term thing because my guess is you're going to be able to replace Russian oil. But right now, no question about it. You know, you you shut off. Okay, 5% of the oil that's coming into the country, and what happens? Costs go up. Costs are already pushing $4 a gallon. In some parts of the country, as we've talked about before, they're over 5 bucks a gallon. 855 is the Acunet Mortgage Talk and Text Line. All right, is it time to just say no to Russian oil? And if we don't just say no to Russian oil, are we essentially undercutting all this other stuff that we're doing with regard to sanctions. 855-616-1620, we discuss. Jeff Wagner on WTMJ. Eight five five six one six one six twenty, 616 1620 which is the ACUNET Mortgage Talk and Text Line. A couple people are, are saying, well I, I think the amount of oil we import from Russia is is about one percent. No, I mean it's actually about three percent. Um about 3%. Uh, the biggest share of imports, Canada, Mexico, Saudi Arabia, and then Russia. And Russia is um, 3% of, of the oil that we import. Um, 855-616-1620. All right. Should we, should we just say no to, to Russian oil? And if we don't say no to Russian oil, what does that say about the other sanctions that we're putting into place? Now, understandably, this is, especially from the U.S.'s perspective, it's, it's a relative drop in the bucket. But you know, should we do it anyways? Let's talk to Craig and Horicon. Craig, you're on WTMJ.
3: Hey, good afternoon, Jeff, and I hope you have a great weekend after this. Uh, first of all, uh, yes, we should stop, uh, importing Russian oil and or natural gas. I don't know if we're doing any of that. I've heard anywhere from three to seven percent. That's still billions of dollars that obviously we can stop immediately. And as much, I mean, I am a staunch conservative Republican and I know, uh, you know, the current administration stopped the pipelines and stuff. But we've also stopped uh, current legal lands and, and legal pumping and stuff that we could just jump right back and recover that immediately. So uh, yes, it's something we, we should stop and do every sanction we can to stop this war immediately. Sir, have a yeah, great weekend, to, Jeff.
1: Yeah, you too. Thank Craig. Thanks for calling. Well, you know, you're, you know, th- this is again to use the cliche: these are some chickens coming home to roost because both during the Biden administration and now during the uh, the Obama administration. You know, you, you've had for example, the Keystone pipeline that's been shut down and, and yes, you you can't just turn on that spigot all of a sudden, but you know, we're kind of in this situation. I think we should have been moving towards energy independence for the longest time and part of that to me it, it involves the, again, the whole thing of fossil fuels. I understand that there's all sorts of people who are big into the Green New Deal and we want to go with electricity, even though you've got to figure out how you're going to get the power to generate to generate electricity but but putting that aside we're not there right now so it seems to me right now what we need to be doing is we need to be doing everything we possibly can to increase the domestic production of oil to allow us number 1 to take these steps to cut Russia off and number two maybe even get to a point where we're starting to supply more of the oil to say Europe or things like that and at the same time if you're moving again towards some of the renewable energy sources that's fine but this idea that we're going to declare war on fossil fuels right now at a time when we're not ready to move to the so-called green energy to me that makes no sense at all. Mike in Illinois. Mike you're on WTMJ. Good afternoon good afternoon jeff how are you good what do you think
2: Ditto to what you said um i know it's a small amount that we uh, import from russia but at the least it would be symbolic um perhaps we need to open up some of our reserves and and need to drill more um i know that doesn't sound good environmentally but obviously we've done it before it's safer now probably than it's ever been and um you know, under the circumstances, we need to do that. Even if we weren't in the situation with Russia, we need to lower our own prices. I mean, they're certainly higher now because of what's going on, but they were high even before that. So we do need to be, we need to move towards energy independence. Absolutely. I,
1: I, I'm, with, you know, Mike. Thanks a lot for the call. I, I mean, I'm with. you. I mean, I, I'm kind of in the category of drill, baby, drill. See, and I think you can do that. At, as well as again move towards the, the electric cars and things like that but I, I keep saying this and I understand I infuriate some people oh we, we should just do this automatically we're not ready for that you don't have a power grid that can do that how is the electricity going to get generated no I mean maybe 10 years from now maybe 15 years from now maybe 20 years from now we'll be there but we're not there right now and in the real world what we need to be doing is figuring everything we can do in my opinion to increase our domestic oil production to reduce our energy dependence on overseas sources. Joe Biden needs to be lobbying everybody. For example, people in the east they should be increasing their oil production. So again, countries in Europe in particular can, can back off on using the Russians. Now, here's an interesting text that, that I guess argues the opposite side. We should lift all sanctions and put America first. Ukraine does not take priority over Americans. Americans should not be paying an extra inflation tax just to stoke the ego of the elites. I'm not sure I understand what that means. End the sanctions now. Lift all sanctions and put America first. Ukraine does not take priority over the Americans. So the, the idea, I guess, is that we, we shouldn't be involved a- at all And we should turn our back on NATO, and we should turn our back on the free world. And if Russia decides they want to invade Ukraine or invade Poland or invade the Baltic states or do whatever... Well, it, it doesn't impact us. See, I, I guess I couldn't disagree more with that because all you have to do is look at what this invasion has done to to worldwide markets, what it's done to supply chains, independent of the whole concept of sanctions and this idea that okay we're Fortress America and that we can ignore what goes on in the balance of the world just doesn't make a sen- doesn't make any sense to me at all. Back with more in just a minute. This is Jeff Wagner.
2: This is
3: Jeff Wagner on WTMJ.
1: Jeff, global climate change is a bigger threat to the people of the world than what's happening in Ukraine right now. I'm not sure that there's too many people in Eastern Europe right now which would agree with that. I'm not sure the millions of million plus refugees who are fleeing from bombed out cities would necessarily agree with that. I'm not sure the people in the area where Russian bombs hit the nuclear power plant would necessarily agree with that. Deal with marginally higher gas prices. Enough with the whiners. I I just there's a lot of craziness. I think you know that that's that's going on out there it's i do think though that this is one of the these moments where you you need to recognize that that our energy policy's been messed up for a long time and i understand that joe biden has declared war on on fossil fuels and you know we, we want to have everybody driving in electric cars and, and maybe maybe that's going to be fine In 10 years, maybe you'll have a power grid that will support it. Right now, we're not close to that, which is why, in my opinion, it was so incredibly short-sighted to have stalled the delivery of oil um, through, for example, the Keystone Pipeline. That pipeline could have transported 800,000 barrels of oil per day from Canada to the U.S., um, and refineries on the West Coast, A- and that would be an incredible advantage. I think you know to helping us to the extent we depend at all on Russian oil. I Think the you know the other thing is if you say okay, well who's going to replace if we don't if we don't buy oil from Russia anymore who's going to replace it? Well, I think Canada and countries within Latin America could probably do that. The argument I guess is that if, if we shut them off. If we shut them off, then other people will will just buy the oil. I don't know. I I mean, that's why it has to be a concerted action. So far, Europe in in general, while imposing a number of different sanctions, hasn't been willing to go that that extra step because, again, they don't want to see gasoline prices rise. And and we are seeing, again, some of the short-sightedness that you've had when, for example, Germany decided that it was going to get a, a ton of its energy you know from Russia so it's a bigger deal for example in some places in Germany in some place in Europe than it is for us but that doesn't necessarily mean that if we're going to be imposing sanctions, at least in my opinion, that we shouldn't be looking for replacement sources and saying we're at least going to be consistent. Because if we're saying we're going to shut off Russia's access to foreign bank accounts and we're going to shut off their ability to you know, trade in dollars, how, how is it that we can still be importing oil from them? It just makes absolutely no sense to me. And I understand there's political calculations as well. And Joe Biden, none of us want to see gas prices go up. And he recognizes that he's kind of in a box here because, again, by delaying, deferring, or denying domestic, more domestic oil production, he's kind of limited his options in this case. But that doesn't mean that we shouldn't just say no to Russian oil.
2: Welcome back to Jeff Wagner on WTMJ. All right,
1: there's... A- an opinion piece in the Wall Street Journal today that at least had me me thinking about this. Um, we, we are we are getting reports that Vladimir Putin. Well, look, the incredible. Russian military might. There, there's, there's no question about it. I, at, at some point in time, if there's not a ceasefire, at, at some point in time, Russian military might is going to overcome Ukraine. Now, what that means, I, I don't know, because it's one thing to you know, move Russian tanks into the, the main city of Kiev. It's another thing to... I, I don't know to, to govern that, to take it over, I mean, to occupy the country, because U- Ukraine is going to be fighting. And again, as I've said repeatedly, and I think most people would agree, Russia has become essentially a rogue nation. And it's standing on the world stage. I, I don't know how it gets back any sort of credibility at all. You look at the people who voted against sanctions of Russia in the U- UN this week, and it's, it's a real motley. Creates you've got Syria and North Korea. I mean, when 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 those are your allies, it tells you where you are in the world. One of the other things that a lot of people are saying is that the, the Russian people, so far. Aren't real, I mean, they're experiencing the impact of the sanctions. But so far, they're, they're still not hearing everything that's going on in the ground in, in, in this war. So here's the headline in this, the article in the Wall Street Journal that caught my attention. How to entice Russian soldiers out of Ukraine. All right, it's kind of simple. Um, offer them refuge, at least until Putin is gone, if they surrender and defect. Russia's unprovoked eva- invasion of Ukraine is already a humanitarian disaster. Although Putin's endgame is not yet clear, the West's expressed refusal to put place boots on the ground in Ukraine invites Russia to expand its long shrunken empire. Mr Putin views the whole of Ukraine as ripe for recontact, reconquest, while he must see Poland, the Baltics and other North American treaty organization enemies as vulnerable to non-military subversion. Short of committing troops, what can NATO do to weaken his hand? And then it talks about the article talks about, you know, again, you know, hitting the economic sanctions and things like that. But here's the intriguing idea. Reports of low Russian military morale, bodies left on the battlefield, soldiers looting for food and other necessities, suggest a tactic worth considering. NATO should announce that any Russian troops who defect will be granted temporary refuge in the West. A soldier could surrender to a Ukrainian military unit or government officer or at a NATO country's border crossing. He would be permitted to stay until Mr. Putin's regime is overthrown, at which point he would have to return to Russia. In some selected cases, perhaps when a defecting soldier could prove that he would be prosecuted by a post-Putin regime, he might apply for formal protection under the 1953 Refugee Convention, which usually leads to permanent residency. Hum- human rights violations, violators and serious criminals would not qualify. Such a scheme is likely to be effective because even a few initial defections can have a cat- cascading effect, especially if other troops fear that the offer might be time limited. The scheme would entail no risk to NATO forces and cost the NATO countries essentially nothing, particularly if the defectors are spread among them. All right. Let's tee this up. Our number 855-616-1620, which is the Equinit Mortgage Talk and Text line. So here, here's the idea that goes directly to the, the whole concept of Russian morale. We, we've all we, we've heard these stories early on about how one of the reasons the convoys haven't been moving as quickly is you, you've had soldiers that don't have food, that soldiers who you know were, were, were conscripts who had no idea that they were being thrown into this battle, who thought that they would be moving into Ukraine and they were told that they're going to be viewed as liberators. And instead, you know, they're, they're making this huge resistance. You've had reports, and again, you know, who knows how accurate they are of soldiers who'd be disabling, like their uh, tanks and things like that. So the idea is just just to offer offer them the ability to defect. Anybody who wants to walk off the line. You know, yes, what we'll do is we will grant you, now the article's idea is we'll grant you temporary refuge in the West. I don't know. Maybe if that doesn't do it, maybe it's, hey, you know, if you want to defect, if you want to go AWOL, if you want to walk off the line, we are going to welcome you in the West. 855-616-1620. Any chance at all that any significant number of Russian soldiers would take advantage of that our first texter says that well they'd all be prosecuted well yeah they'd be prosecuted i guess if they returned to russia under a regime of vladimir putin and and maybe it's possible that their families would be prosecuted and things like that but i don't know is this if nothing else in in the war of propaganda wouldn't this be a a great a great start wouldn't this be something really impressive? And and it is, just from a propaganda perspective, if you could get a thousand Russian soldiers, if you could get five thousand Russian soldiers who said would say, you know, I, I'm I'm done with this. I I don't I don't want to fight. I don't know where we're here. I I don't. This isn't for Mother Russia. This is for just, this is a war of conquest. I'm ready to go. 855-616-1620. Would this work? Essentially offering amnesty to anybody who wants to walk off the line and say, we'll we'll let you defect to the West. 855-616-1620. We discuss in a moment. Jeff Wagner on WTMJ. (laughs) If you're tuning in, there's a column in the Wall Street Journal today, and it's actually, it's, it's written by a, a Yale professor um, of international affairs, and one of the suggestions that he's, he's offering is, he said, you know, here's one of the things we should be doing. We should, we're hearing all these reports of poor morale among among the Russian soldiers and, and people who were feel that they were lied to and they didn't realize what they were getting into and thought they'd be viewed as liberators. His idea is we should, we being the West, NATO, they should offer essentially amnesty and, and temporary refuge to any soldier who defects, turns themselves in, surrenders, would send them out of Ukraine and relocate them in the West, either for a limited amount of time or perhaps, you know, permanently. The idea being that if, and just from a propaganda perspective it, uh, alone, but if you could, they said there might be a snowball effect. If you, if you know, today it's ten people, and then the next day it's two hundred, the next day it's two thousand. You know, who knows what impact this might have? I think it's an interesting idea. Eight five five six one six one six twenty. Jeff, I, it wouldn't hurt to try surrender to the Ukrainian army idea, but I don't believe it would work as many soldiers will feel retaliation to their families back home. Well, you know that's, you know that that's of course an impact. Uh, good afternoon Jeff, I think it's a fantastic idea. Who knows, maybe some will end up in the United States. We could use the workers. Um, Jeff, I don't think it would work because again there's probably a family back home that would suffer consequences if they defected. That That's that, to me, is, is the biggest argument that might, I guess, discourage that. You know, maybe maybe all these reports about, you know, Russians, the, the Russian army being low on morale, maybe that's not true, but I, I tend to believe that there's probably something to it. To me, this is one of these things, these ideas, though, that, that doesn't cost you anything. You you just float it out there. You drop these leaflets. You do all this type of stuff saying anybody who walks away, you know, we will We'll get you out of Ukraine, and we'll relocate you somewhere else. You'd have to have an agreement among the NATO countries that they're going to accept this. But just if you could get a 1,000, if you could get a 1,000, wouldn't that maybe be worth it? Gianni and Montello, you're on WTMJ.
2: Yes, Jeff oh, Wow, what a brilliant idea this this professor uh, needs to needs to be applauded uh, i I certainly wouldn't have thought of this, but yes it 's true absolutely russia's a mess. I lived there for two years um, n- not only wouldn't I go back, but I certainly wouldn 't live there uh, for the rest of my life. Yes, give them amnesty, get them out of uh, ukraine if 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 they're if they're in there um, as as soldiers. Uh, russian soldiers i think it's a great idea i i don't i see little downside would there be reprisal reprisal um against the families maybe but uh at least put it out there and offer it. it it would really uh discombobulate putin
1: wouldn't it when did you when did you live in russia how long ago after the,
2: after the fall, so this was the early nineties, right after, and it was a mess. Believe me, I, I mean the, the poverty there, uh, and I was in St. Petersburg, so you know the poverty in St. Petersburg and Moscow. I mean it was it was horrible. It was horrible. And, but once you go into the rural areas, and I, I, I've been from the east to the west, right stuck all the way on the train. Uh, that was in the late '90s, um, but it, it, it even you know the rural areas, Jeff. People live uh, like we did uh, 90 years ago. I mean, you know, on the railroad stops and that. So there are no there are no transcontinental highways. I mean, it is it is the rail system, and uh, spur lines off that rail system. But it is a very 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 antiquated backward country, um, even today. And yeah, I, well, I've been back culture, right I No,
1: I no, I no, I, I appreciate that, and I, I mean, I guess. I guess it, it all depends on, on what you are, in fact, used to, and I, I think, you know, as as there's been more more westernization, you know, especially among younger people and stuff, and you, you've got the Internet, and that's one of the advantages of the Internet, and you've got this more globalization, uh, I think it, it has been interesting to see and, and that's where I mean I think that's where the sanctions really start to kick in because they, they do tend to to affect the rank and file Russians where all of a sudden the, the interest rate in the country has gone from 9% to 20% and probably higher. The stock market, the Russian stock market has been closed for the I think the entire last week. You've got you know runs on, on currency. The ruble is now worth less than a penny and you've got people lining up and standing in line for hours to get to ATMs hoping that they can get money out. Um, it, it's it's all those different factors that that come together and i guess i guess i just think when you look at something like this this is this is the ultimate it doesn't cost you anything. You you put this offer out there. If nobody takes advantage of it, then nobody takes advantage of it. But you know, you, you might have some people who say, look, this is enough. I, I want out of this situation and I'm willing to I'm willing to walk away from my tank and, and move on and see what the rest of my life is going to look like. Just an idea. Back with more in just a minute. This is Jeff Wagner, WTMJ. <laughs> This week's sponsor for the Jeff Wagner Home Improvement Showcase, presented by Great Midwest Bank, is senior realtors Bruce and Gene Nemovitz. Trust, Experience, Integrity. Are you a senior looking to sell your home or someone looking to help a family member downsize perhaps? Well, with over 20 years of experience, Bruce and Gene are dedicated to providing the best services to seniors and their families. They do a great job. To learn more, visit brucesteam.com or call 262 242 6177 and do not forget they have their big seminar coming up a week from tuesday give them a call go online register they always do a tremendous job with that okay can we stop whining about gerrymandering now I, I just I, I raised this question. The here, the, the the of course the news story is that the state supreme court, in a four to three vote with conservative justice Brian Hagedorn siding with the three liberals, they have decided to choose a, a redistricting map, and they're choosing the one that Governor Tony Evers drafted behind closed doors now the the irony of this is that you know we, we've had people on the left talking about the lack of transparency and the lack of input and that's that's pretty much what Evers did in drawing his map but but here see here here's the bottom line on this and just to kind of refresh everybody's recollection as to how we got here every ten years based on the census the legislative districts need to be redrawn Why? Because there needs to be an approximately equal number of people in each Wisconsin Assembly District, in each Wisconsin Senate District, and in each federal congressional district. And over the course of 10 years, people move. So you you always have to redraw these lines to balance them out. When you're doing redistricting, one of the principal things that you're trying to, to do is you're trying to keep people together. You know the the idea is you, you don't as a general rule you don't want a congressional district that starts for example at the, the in Kenosha at the border um of Illinois border and you run it all the way up to Sheboygan. I mean you know geographically you want to keep people together. But even within that there's some flexibility that, that goes on. Now the, the other reality in Wisconsin and some people don't like to hear that, is in Wisconsin and in many other states, but Wisconsin let's talk about, people tend to cluster politically. By that I mean geographically. The vast majority of people um, who live in the state of Wisconsin, by by geography, are Republican. So most areas of the state are Republican. However, you have Democrats who are clustered overwhelmingly in Madison, the city of and Dane County and, and also in the city of Milwaukee a couple other places as well but you know in for example the city of Milwaukee probably eight out of ten people are, are Democrats so the question becomes if you're drawing assembly districts and you're trying to keep people close together in communities well what that means is you're going to have assembly districts you're going to have Senate districts that are overwhelmingly Democrat. Because that's where the Democrats all live, or in many cases, they're going to be overwhelmingly Republican. And the problem as it's gone out, or at least some people see it as a problem, and that's the idea of gerrymandering, is, well, it's a 50-50 state, but because of where people live, you have more assembly districts, more Senate districts that tend to be... Republican than, than Democrat. But that's just basically a function of the fact that you have people that are clustering, that there's so many Democrats who are living in the city of Milwaukee and so many Democrats who are living in the city of Madison or in Dane County that that's just where you are. So anyhow, that's always what the argument is. The Supreme Court, bottom line yesterday, has adopted Tony Evers' maps. There's all this high-fiving. The, the truth is, even the maps presented by Tony Evers, because the Democrats cluster in a couple areas, they are overwhelmingly Republican. So that, that that's just the bottom line. You have the vast, I think it's probably like out of the Assembly, 60 of the seats are Republican-leaning seats, and there's maybe 10 that are up for grabs, and then the rest are Democrat-leaning seats. But, but Tony Evers got his maps through. That's the important thing. So I guess my question is, it's somewhat rhetorical, is, For the next 10 years, can can we not have any more complaining about gerrymandering? These were the Supreme Court adopted Evers' maps. This is the Democrat governor. So if it turns out then that after the next election the Republicans have 60 of the 99 assembly seats? Can we stop complaining about this? If it turns out that the Republicans end up perhaps picking up a congressional seat and end up with six Republicans and two Democrats in in Congress, can we stop complaining about it or are we going to continue to hear for the next 10 years these complaints about gerrymandering? Bottom line is, and I've said this before for Republicans in some other states, if, you know, if Democrats in Wisconsin want to start winning more assembly seats, what they need to do is figure out a way to get more Democrats into more geographic areas across the state. Otherwise, it's always going to be this way. Okay, when we come back, I know people don't like Donald Trump. But is this really a crime? I'll explain. We'll discuss. Stick around. This is Jeff Wagner, WTMJ.
0: Live from the Annex Wealth Management Studios, this is the Jeff Wagner
1: Show. And now, WTMJ's Jeff Wagner. It always happens to me, this hour of... On, on Fridays, we have got Pop Culture Corner coming up after the bottom of the hour. But there's two things I want to talk to you about—completely, completely different things. Donald Trump and pickleball. Let's start with Donald Trump. I, I, I and I understand when whenever we talk about former President Trump, I, I there there are people on either side who just lose all all sense of of realism because they either hate him or they absolutely love him. And I guess I always try to apply and look at, at, at the middle. Now, let me just say this at the outset. As I've said this before, um, I'm not sure. I, I did not. I agreed with a lot of the stuff that Donald Trump did during the time that he was the president. At the same time. I got tired of the chaos, I got tired of the constant tweets, I got tired of of the way he ran the the office. In addition, I think a couple of things that President Trump did um, after he lost the election, I, I think candidly, render him unfit to serve in the future. Oh, how could you say that? Well, it's his refusal to accept the fact that he lost the election. Not just the lack of graciousness, but the, the constant efforts to undermine the electoral process, I think, are kind of unforgivable. And I think his behavior leading up to and on January 6th were were. Unforgivable as well. And to me, it's almost impossible to imagine a scenario that I could vote for Donald Trump again. Don't I hope I'm not put in that that situation. And I hope that that he's not the Republican nominee in 2024. Oh, that. Well, that's how I feel at the same time. the, The way The way some people on the left are are treating him is if he is a war criminal, and I have issues with that as well. Now, here's the first part of a story that appears in the New York Times today. And as we all know, there's this ongoing investigation into what happened on January 6th, and there's some reports that it might lead to a reference of criminal charges against Donald Trump. Okay, let me share with you what, what apparently the theory this committee has. Shortly after the 2020 election, as ballots were being counted, the top data expert in President Donald Trump's reelection campaign told him bluntly he was going to lose. In the weeks that followed, as Mr. Trump continued to insist he had won, a senior Justice Department official told him repeatedly that his claims of widespread voting fraud were meritless, ultimately warning him that they would hurt the country. These concerns were echoed by top White House, the top White House lawyer who told the president that he would be entering into a murder-suicide pact if he continued to pursue extreme plans to try to invalidate the results of the 2020 election. Yet Mr. Trump, time and time again, this is the New York Times today, discounted the facts, the data, and many of his own advisors as he continued to promote the lie of a stolen election according to hundreds of pages of exhibits, interview transcripts, email correspondence assembled by the House committee investigating. Investigating the January 6th attack. Okay, right. In laying out the account, the panel revealed the basis for what its investigators believe could be a criminal case against Mr. Trump. At its core is the argument that in repeatedly rejecting the truth that he had lost the 2020 election, including the assertions of his own campaign aides, White House lawyers, two successive attorneys general, and federal investigators, Mr. Trump was not just being stubborn or ignorant about his defeat, he was knowingly perpetrating a fraud on the United States. It is a bold claim that could be difficult to back up in court. No kidding. But in making it, the House committee has compiled an elaborate narrative of Mr. Stru- Trump's extraordinary efforts to cling to power. Then the article goes on. Our number eight five five six one six one six twenty, which is the Acumen Mortgage Talk and Text line. Look, I I I agree up to up to a point. I, I think it, it's very clear that you had. Donald Trump, who after the results, after the 2020 election in early November, just for whatever reason, whether it was narcissism or ego or whatever, refused to accept the the information that was being provided him by multiple sources and ended up you know, going to, to one fringe theory after another in trying to perpetrate the, the idea that the election w- was stolen. And in continuing to make that argument, there, there's no question he hurt himself. I don't believe the Republicans lose those two Senate seats in Georgia if, if Trump isn't all about him himself and that the election was stolen. So I, I think what he did candidly in many respects was just unforgivable. All right, and in stoking the, the fire that you know of his supporters, that hey, this election has been stolen or whatever, he, he certainly, I think, laid the groundwork in the mind of some for what ended up happening on January sixth. So it, it's not this is nothing to be proud of, but apparently this committee is talking about issuing criminal charges, believing that it's it's a basis for fraud on the United States by Donald Trump, being unwilling to accept the results of the election. Our number is 855-616-1620. That's the accurate Mortgage Talk and Text Line. Look, I, I'm sorry. I don't care how you feel about Donald Trump, one way or the other. But th- this is crazy. I mean, so so if you have, moving forward, if you have candidates who just for whatever reasons refuse to re- accept the results, I, I don't believe this was a legitimate election, I, I'm going to pursue all these different things, that now becomes a, f- a crime, 8556161620 I'm sorry I just think that's an absolutely absurd position to take. If you believe you've got evidence that he incited the riot on January 6th, okay that's one thing. But simply because he was a bad sport and continue to perpetrate the claim that he really won the election, something that unfortunately I think some people still do believe, that that could get you sentenced to jail. Really? 855-616-1620. We discuss in just a moment.
2: Welcome back to Jeff Wagner on WTMJ.
1: 855-616-1620. I, I, at, look, at, at some point in time, you, you do start to wonder whether this investigation into the activities on January 6th it is, at least as it relates to President Trump, former President Trump, is, is becoming or has already crossed into the area of a witch hunt. I, I understand that the whole idea that you want to find out what happened and what led to this and make sure things like that don't happen again. But the New York Times is saying apparently the theory is that at least some people have that because Trump was told repeatedly by responsible people that there's no election fraud, that you lost the election, and he was unwilling to accept that and continue to you know, perpetuate the claim that the election was stolen, I really won, etc., cetera, etc., cetera, that that is a criminal act, that that is a fraud against the United States. And I, I think That's that's crazy. Jeff, here's a text. As far as I'm concerned, thinking what you want to think right or wrong is not a crime. Half of Washington would need to be prosecuted. Jeff, Stacey Abrams still believes that she is the rightful of governor of Georgia claiming the election was stolen from her. Should she be indicted as well? Yeah, that's 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 the concern that's out there. Look, and and again, I I, Donald Trump did not cover himself with glory. As I said earlier, I, I think his behavior after the the election renders him unfit for office oh, some people don't like me saying that but that's how i feel but that's different from saying all right that your refusal to accept an election loss means that you should be indicted and perhaps thrown in prison because of that let's talk to ed in wauwatosa ed you're on wtmj
2: hi Um, Hi. i believe that the president is responsible for the actions not only himself but his direct agents, his personal attorney, Lynn Wood, Rudy Giuliani, all those other folks. It wasn't that he himself believed it was a problem, but they orchestrated the January 6th insurrection. Now, I'll take that as a great assault. Back up a little bit. There has to be documentation, the emails, letters, and so forth that indicate that but my understanding from what you read in the, in the general press is that there are such evidence.
1: Okay. Well, if, if things are going see that, that's two things. If you, if the, if the theory ultimately is that we believe that Donald Trump was a conspirator to the events of what happened January 6th, or or was the the leader of this giant conspiracy or aided and abetted that, that's, that, that that's one thing. Now I, I Candidly, I, I don't think that's going anywhere, but but that's one thing. But that's not the theory that they're talking about now. This isn't that. This is we believe that by Donald Trump ignoring the advice of his people around him continuing to tell the American people that the election was stolen, the, the argument is that in and of itself, that claim, is a fraud on the United States. He committed fraud like, a, like you know, I don't know, the guy that's running the Ponzi scheme or whatever. That, to me, is completely bogus. It's a theory that's never going to go anywhere. I mean, it's kind of like... OK, maybe it's because of Trump's narcissism. Maybe it's because he just didn't want to confront the, the reality of the election, that he ignored all this different advice. But I think people have the right to do it, and then they have the right to suffer the consequences of it. Like I say, I think President Trump turned off a lot of people who might have otherwise been supporters by his refusal to accept what ended up happening. But that, that's that's not a crime. Now, what you're talking about is, I think maybe we've got evidence and we can prove that he aided and abetted you know, criminal activities and stuff like that, that's that's a whole different sort of thing. Again, there's a very high standard of proof on, on that and, and I, I don't think that you're going to find I don't think that you're going to find evidence, you prove beyond a reasonable doubt, that Donald Trump and Rudy Giuliani and some of the other of the the more crazy people that were surrounding him actually, you know, orchestrated and conspired with the Proud Boys to let, let's take over the, the Capitol. I think what you had was a bunch of yahoos who behaved like yahoos often do, and deserve to be held accountable for that. But tying that to Trump, I think, is going to be tough. But that's not the theory that they are using. And I'm just telling you, if this is the theory, and if this is what January 6th investigation is all about, gee, Trump refused to accept the fact that he lost, that could be a crime against the United States, Then, then this is a witch hunt pure and simple. All right, it is 2:53 when we come back we're going to find out what John Mercure has on his mind for Wisconsin's afternoon news. Please stick around.